Okay, so this morning is December 7th. It's 2008. Uh, our message this morning, as you can see in your bulletin, is called Revolution. And uh, I don't want to read to you the bulletin, but uh, raise your hand if you've read it already. Wow, okay, so I'm going to read to you the bulletin. Uh, it says, A revolution, from the Latin revolutio, a turnaround, is a fundamental change in power or organizational structures that takes place in a relatively short period of time. A fundamental change in power. How about that? Most revolutions have a conspicuous symbol or event that becomes associated with the movement and serves to mo motivate and mobilize the people. One such symbol is the Liberty Bell. A popular encyclopedia said the following about the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is a bell that has served as one of the most prominent symbols of the American Revolutionary War. It is a familiar symbol of independence within the United States and it has been described as an icon of liberty and justice. With popular movements, with something that starts among people and generates mass followings, there's almost always some symbol, some slogan, some event that people rally around. And uh, like in this case with the Liberty Bell, it becomes an icon, a symbol of that movement. So that just looking at it brings to your mind certain things. Uh, the French Revolution had a storming of the Bastille. So uh, King Louis has got political prisoners. Uh, people are angry about this. There's only seven of them at the time. But the people stormed the Bastille. Well, to spark the French Revolution on paintings, on coins, and in literature, this kind of thing was commemorated, memorialized, so that everywhere you saw that symbol, you remembered that people had a right to throw off tyranny. In the Bolshevik Revolution, there was an event called Bloody Sunday. These people came and they assembled before the Tsar's uh, uh, Nicholas, and they wanted to talk about shorter work days. They wanted to talk about rights for their families. Those things. And in general, they're supporters of the Tsar. The Tsar wasn't even in his palace, but his guards fired out into the crowd. Injured three or 400 people, killed some 40 people. That single event, as it began to be shared and put on coins and put in papers and uh, used through the medium of propaganda, rallied a whole nation to overthrow their government. I wanted to talk this morning about revolutions and their symbols from a biblical standpoint. So go to the book of Exodus. I already told you to go there, didn't I? Okay, so in the second chapter of Exodus, I want you to hear something that God says. It says, during that time, this is the 23rd verse, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help... And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Israel had been present in Egypt for 400 years. That's longer than our country has been in existence. There were inhabitants on this continent before we got here, but today everybody on the continent we call Americans, or everybody at least within our country on this continent we call Americans, even though there were people here before. 
Well, this was different. Israel's culture, Israel's God, caused them to be distinct among the Egyptians. So they're there for 400 years, but they never assimilate. Because of this, because of their refusal to conform to the pressures of Egypt, because of a religious and ethnic identity, Egypt oppresses them, and God hears their cry. The Scripture actually says He was concerned about them. How on earth is God concerned about something? Have you ever considered something like that? What a human emotion. It sounds a little bit like we're making God more human. This is not the case. Our emotions are representative of how God is. What does it mean to be concerned for something? Does it mean He's worried about how it's going to turn out for Him? Probably not. I mean, He's God. He sees the end from the beginning. So what does it mean that He's concerned? I think it means that He has empathy for their plight. They've been in this situation a long time. They went into Egypt on top of the world with their guy at the top of the monarchy. But because of some revolution in Egypt with a group of people called the Hyksos, they're now on the bottom. And they're not respected. And they're in a position of harsh slavery for a long time. How long have you had to suffer with some event? How long have you had the disgrace of something in your life? God's concerned. He looks upon us and He empathizes. He's concerned with our positions. Turn with me to Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, starting in the 7th verse, listen to what He speaks to Moses. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of My people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. My little boy threw up during the worship service. Anybody catch that? Yeah, Elizabeth did. Uh, your heart goes out when you see somebody who's hurting in any kind of way. Immediately, a couple of the women who have already had their children ran back there to help. Right? That's a normal human emotion to want to help the oppressed. That's God-given. Said, so, well, he wouldn't be an oppressed. Nobody was beating him. No, it's sickness. He was under the power of something that is dehumanizing, something that is lessening, and everybody wants to help. God sees this. And the compassion that you have for somebody like Gabriel, who's going up in the back of the church during worship, doesn't begin to compare to the compassion you would have if some man of a different nationality was beating him every day and refusing to feed him because he couldn't work fast enough, or hard enough, or wasn't strong enough, or didn't understand what he was being told. Can you imagine that situation? Because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. The biggest lie the devil has ever told the world is that God put everything in motion then backed off of it and doesn't care. This allows people to acknowledge there's a God but completely miss His character. The Bible describes a God who watches mankind and considers everything that we do. I have come down to, let's see, concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. One of the things that I want you to understand before we get into revolution is that revolution has to do always with people that are experiencing injustice and their hope of being rescued. No matter what the setting is, no matter where it is, whether it's Russia or whether it's the uh, country of France, 
no matter where it is, the American Revolution, it has to do with people who believe that they are experiencing injustice. They're suffering in some way. And they have a hope of being rescued. He goes on to say that he's seen the people being oppressed in the ninth verse. And so he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh. So what we have is we have kind of a mission. We have Moshe, a Hebrew, raised and educated in the ways of the Egyptians, going to speak with an oppressive monarch who's mistreating people. On God's behalf, Moses is going to speak. Look at the 19th verse. This is kind of the problem with revolution. 19th verse of the third chapter. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Have you ever wondered why somebody would stay in a situation that they're in as long as they have? Do you remember before this Iraq war you would hear stories about Iraqi scientists working for six months without a, a paycheck? Anybody in here want to work for six months without a paycheck? You say, well, why do they do it? Well, because it takes a mighty hand to change somebody's situation. When you've been trapped in something for generations, when your parents did it this way, their parents did it this way, you begin to accept the status quo as it's just the way that it is. How many things in your life have you been tempted to just accept as the way that I am? It takes a mighty hand to step into a life, into a country, into a situation and bring about drastic change. People naturally resist it, are resistant to it. We have something that we call paradigm, something that we like even if it's wrong, even if it's not liberty, we like familiar surroundings. For whatever reason, we gravitate towards what we've always done rather than what we need to do. But in its heart, the Bible is a story about a revolution, about God sending a man to a group of people on His behalf, a mighty hand that says, I've seen the oppression of my people and I'm here to rescue them. What a powerful story. In fact, the Bible doesn't just do that with Moses and Israel. When you think about it, the Bible starts with the earth completely covered in darkness. And what does God do? He interjects light. And that light begins to drive back and separate light from darkness. Some of the Hebrew sages say that this sums up the entire message of the Bible. That man is moving from a state where he's dominated by darkness and God has interjected His light and forever there's becoming a separation. There's warfare that is going on. That's interesting. The word revolution can mean many things. Uh, we already told you about a movement, a fundamental change in power structure. Revolution is also when something goes completely in a circular path. Is it not? The Bible is also a story of revolution in that way. We start off walking with God. Where do we end up? Walking with God. But between, the path that it takes us all the way around can feel a long ways from where we started and where we need to get, doesn't it? It's funny, when you ask people to chart their spiritual growth, almost always, like if you, if you give somebody a timeline and you say, hey, look, here, here on a scale of 1 to 10 is when you felt closest to God. What time period is that? It's always in the past. It's almost never right now. If you ask people that say, hey, when did you feel closest to God in your life? It's not like five minutes ago. It's always like, you know, uh, about a year ago, man, I was, I was on top of the world. Really, what's happened since then? Life. Life's happened since then. The Bible's a story about a people 
who are being oppressed by some power and needing a mighty hand to bring about a complete and total fundamental change in their life. In Exodus 5, we have something. Uh, I don't want to quiz you today on history, but if I say uh, Tonkin Gulf incident, some of you might remember that these are incidents that begin wars. If we uh, mention the assassination of a Prussian leader, you might recognize, wow, that triggered a war. Uh, if you mention Pearl Harbor, you recognize these are all events that caused somebody to come to a place where he said, you know what, we need a change. In fact, our most famous document, while well, y'all are turned into Exodus in this country, listen to the wording in this. People don't write like this anymore. In our mass media, we've kind of dumbed it down. Listen to how beautiful this is. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving from their just power and from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to establish a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. You know what this is? This is the cry of a people who felt like they were oppressed and wanted a better life and for the first time were willing to do something about it. But if no army ever marched, if there was never a Lexington and Concord event, if there was never a shot fired, it would have just been a hope, right? So in Exodus, God calls a man. He says, I want to rescue. I want to use a mighty hand. I'm going to send you to the Pharaoh because I've seen my people and I'm going to pull them out of misery. But if the man doesn't go, if there is no shot fired, people stay in bondage. The position that the church is in is we are supposed to be those who have experienced a complete life revolution. And now we're supposed to be inviting others to experience that. But Paul said if we don't go, how can they hear? If the people who are sent don't do it, don't live it, don't express it, people stay in bondage. Look at the fifth chapter 6 verse. That same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. Moses has gone before Pharaoh and said, hey, we think you should let us go. We want to go worship our God. Pharaoh's response, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. The enemy always has the same approach. 
Somebody's oppressed. They feel like they can't get free. Well, what do we do? We crush their hope and tell them not to believe in lies because we know that if they rally around truth, rally around the right symbol, rally around the right mighty hand, there's hope for them. Pharaoh wants to crush any hope of a new life before it starts. Have you never met somebody that you just felt like they could just get right for a couple weeks? The light bulb would come on. They would do well. i got family members that if they could just stay sober long enough, I know their whole lives would change. But the enemy pours it on and pours it on because if they get a taste of freedom, they'll want more. So he just keeps oppressing. These are the shots that are fired. I want you to understand the people of God didn't fire the first shots in this scenario. The people of God simply came and said, God wants all men to be free. He wants us free. And Pharaoh answered to that is more oppression. How about that? Look at the seventh chapter. Once shots are fired, once there's an incident in any revolution, two sides take up arms. The two sides that take up arms are going to have battles. And in those battles, there is always going to be an ebb and flow of victory. In this Christian walk, in this walk of the faithful, shots have already been fired. We've already formed our battle lines and there are days in which you will feel like victory and days in which you feel like failure. But the goal is to bring about a complete and total change in power structure. That starts with our lives. Look at this in the 7th chapter. Start with me in the 8th verse. The Lord said to Moshe and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. That's an interesting form of warfare. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of the Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. So far, so good, right? We went and we did what God told us to do. We should have immediate and sudden victory. Have you never felt like that? Well, God told me to do this, but it's not turning out right. Listen to what happens to them. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptians, magicians, also did the same things by their secret arts. How insulting is that? The Lord calls you by a mighty hand. He's going to set somebody free. By a mighty hand, He's going to relieve oppression. So you go and you do exactly what He says to do. And it's unimpressive. They can do the same thing. How many times have you tried to tell somebody a story like, I don't know, Michelle Callahan got healed of cancer. And they follow up that story with, yeah, I, I had a friend whose cancer's in remission too. Mm-hmm. No, we're talking about two different things. So, no, no, I, I look, I, everybody who's sick has got to get better at some point or else they die, right? I mean, I've heard it all. That's why I want you to get those results and frame them. We'll put them in here. Mm-hmm. You understand, when you take your step in faith, you try to share your testimony, and they talk to you about their Zen experience. (laughs) Nobody relate to what I'm talking about? Y'all all all asleep already? How assaulted would your faith be? How assaulted are you when you go to bring the message to the oppressed, when you go to confront the leader? And it looks like it's to no effect. God is working through this ebb and flow of victory to teach a message. Always though. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. The Bible's full of animals eating animals. It's amazing. We have 
skinny cows that eat fat cows with Joseph earlier in Egypt. Here we have a snake that eats snakes. God's teaching a message. When He takes His righteous standards, when He holds them high and throws them to the earth to teach mankind about His nature, we would mistake it for sin. This is Jesus being thrown to the earth becoming sin. And at first it would seem like sin would multiply as the powers in the heavenlies are fighting. But this symbol of sin would swallow up all sin forever. There's a beautiful meaning in this. But honestly, do you think they got that? Probably not. What'd they see? We did something really cool, but they could do it too. And this happened with most of the plagues when you get right down to it. So most of the time, this accusation that Pharaoh's making, don't listen to Moses, don't listen to those things, he's just telling you lies. Let me oppress you some more. could be seductive to the people. We go through a plague of blood. All of these plagues, by the way, have to do with Egyptian gods and Egyptian economy. In, in Egypt, the Nile is a source of life. I mean, their whole life surrounds, even geographically, the Nile River. So when they saw it bleeding, it had to be shocking to them. But Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. Then we have a plague of frogs. And they get everywhere. And Egyptians worship frog deities, as hard as that is to imagine. Then we have plague of gnats. Somewhere in these plagues where our God is using a mighty hand to bring about a complete change in power structure, a message becomes clear. Start in Exodus 8. We're going to be in the 23rd verse. Who's there? There. I lied. We're going to be in the 22nd verse. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. God begins while He's got His heavy hand upon Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods to say, Look, I get it. Through their magic arts, they're able to do some of the same things. You know what they're not able to do? They're not able to draw a distinction between you and them. With each one of these plagues from here on out that are coming upon the whole land, they will not touch a single Israelite. It's an amazing thing. There might even be a parallel to a tribulation period in here if you look carefully. Another time period in which God judges the gods of this world. I want to encourage you. God sees and is concerned about our plight. He empathizes with us. Hebrews teaches us that Jesus shared in flesh and blood precisely so that He could empathize with us. He is setting us free with a mighty hand. But we must allow Him to put us in situations where people can see a distinction between those who are with God and those who are not. As long as everything is bless me, happy, happy, joy, joy. As long as there are no problems, how will anybody see a distinction? It's only when things are difficult that we get a chance to act differently than other people do. And the world sees a distinction. And this teaches a profound message. There is a God in this world who is mighty to save. There is a revolution that is occurring that will fundamentally change the power structures in the universe. 
but it only occurs through his distinct people. One of the difficulties in American Christianity is that it's often very hard to tell a Christian from a Mormon. It's often very hard to tell a Christian from a Lucifer Ron Hubbard follower. Because as long as we're all moral and everything's going well, is there really a difference? This has led to the idea that there are many paths to the one true God. And there's a guy who lives in the Vatican whose church has endorsed that idea. And it's wrong. In its very heart, we're meant to be put into a situation where everybody can see those people are completely distinct. What good would the French or American or Bolshevik revolution be if you can't tell the difference between the two soldiers? Thank God in the American Revolution they were nice enough to wear big red targets, those soldiers. Sorry, Debbie. Uh, Isn't that great? What kind of warfare becomes more difficult than that entrenched warfare? Guerrilla warfare, where you can't tell the difference between civilians and soldiers. This is the muddied water that we live in today, this churchianity. You can't tell whose side anybody is on. Because 80% of our nation says, I'm a follower of Jesus. But over 50% is getting divorced. There are millions and millions of people slaughtering their babies on the altar of selfishness every year. But we're all Christian. When you can't tell the difference, when there is no distinction, who should the plague fall on? Who's being liberated and who's being judged? How about this? When the church says, no, 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 you don't know that I'm a Christian because I act differently under persecution. You know that I'm a Christian because I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm rich. How confusing does that get? Really? Then how are you any different than the worldly business guy with the strange hair on TV? If that's a sign of God's blessing, then how are you any different? Money, money, money. Yeah. How strange is this? Our revolution has gotten off base. The revolution has changed somewhere. Somewhere it looks as if there have been compromisers and switching of sides. I want you to examine how this revolution moves forward. In 9.1, Then the Lord said to Moshe, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship Me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses and donkeys, camels and your cattle, sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to an Israelite will die. The battle lines need to be clear. There is a God, the God of Mandy Wakefield, versus the God of whoever she's talking to that might be indulgence, might be the God of image, could be the God of popularity. People have all kinds of gods. But the difference between the God of Mandy Wakefield and those gods is the fruit of what they bring in your life. One will yield death 100% of the time. Let me ask you, how many VH1 specials do you need to see where people start from nothing, achieve fame and popularity, but are still unhappy and end up near suicidal and destroyed? It, it has never helped anyone. 
By the way, do you know why the livestock here? What did the Egyptians use their bulls for? Sacrifice and worship, the Apisa bull. This is actually the sin that Israel committed in the desert. They made those same golden calves. But what it was saying is the things that we offer to our God will not yield death. The things that you offer to your God will kill every time. It will bring death. There needs to be distinction in our lifestyle, distinction in our worship, not because of what we don't do, not because you don't curse. Mormons don't curse. Not because you don't drink or smoke or whatever else. Jehovah's Witness don't do those things either. There needs to be a distinction because the things that you're bringing before God yield life everywhere you go. As we move through these plagues, we go from frogs to gnats to swarming flies to plagues on livestock to boils. Anybody ever had a boil? We're not talking about crawfish boils. We're talking about boils <laughs> that appear on your body. To hail. And not just hail. Hail with such lightning that it's starting fires. So from the sky is raining 100-pound blocks of ice and there's fire at the same time. These are also Egyptian gods, by the way. Isis and Osiris. We get to the place where locusts have come. Look at this. Look at the 10th chapter and 7th verse. Listen to what the Egyptians are saying to their leader. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? It was not just that God's heavy hand was upon the gods of Egypt. It affected the economy of Egypt. All their fields are being destroyed. All their livestock is being destroyed. God's frustrating their entire way of life trying to bring about a change. What in your life is being frustrated? What in your life is God trying to bring about a change? What do you need to let go of? How badly do you need the affection of that other person? How badly do you need the security of whatever you're holding on to? Our God will accept no other idols he must be God alone in our lives. He's merciful. He encourages us. He helps us. But make no mistake, He's a revolutionary God. He wants to bring about a complete and total change in the fundamental power structure in your life and in the world. That means there can't be anything else that's in charge. Listen to how the devil will work with you to try to get you to compromise. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just... Uh, wait, who's going to be going again? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old and with our flocks and our herds, our sons and our daughters because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. Hey, you know, God bless you. We're all on the same team. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. He says, hey, look, you've got to go, I understand. But don't take your families with you. When you first get born again, when you are excited about the Lord, when you have fallen in love with Him to the point where you're singing to Him in your car, you feel differently when you're with your lost relatives? You have a hard time telling them, acting yourself around them. You revert to the old nature. How about your friends at work? Do you live like an Egyptian with the Egyptians and like an Israelite with the Israelites? 
Because God wants to draw a distinction with you. Pharaoh will tell you, hey, it's cool that you love Jesus and all, but religion's a private matter. How many times have you heard that? Makes me want to vomit. I, I have a hard time not laughing in someone's face when they say that. How private was Jesus' crucifixion? How private was that? And well, I'm just modest. Yeah, you think Jesus wasn't modest when they nailed his naked body to a cross for the world to see? In our heart, all revolution has to rally around something. In our heart, God has built us to admire something more than anything else. And it has to do with self-sacrifice. We've become jaded. We expect human beings to act in their own self-interest. We don't expect people to act selflessly. And when we do, it's inspirational. Anybody ever seen uh, Braveheart? Yeah, a few of you have seen it. Nick, you saw that movie? Yeah. <laughs> it's inspirational. A guy named William Wallace teaches people about freedom, but how did he teach them about freedom? By giving up his. You see these kind of movies, and deep down in our core, something moves in us, and we know. How about that? So the locusts come. No compromise. Turn with me to the 10th chapter. You didn't have to turn for it, did you? Don't you like when I put your Scriptures in sequential order for you? In the 10th chapter, in the 21st verse, we've moved on to a plague of darkness. By the way, what was Ra the God of? Sun. Sun deity. So what do you think it would mean to an Egyptian when the sky goes black? Yeah. The only thing more important than the sun in the sky was the Pharaoh on the throne who was supposed to be Ra himself. And the only thing that was nearly important as the sun in the sky and the Pharaoh on the throne was the son of Pharaoh who was the son of Ra, Ra incarnate. Isn't that interesting how that imagery shows up all over the place? In fact, if you really wanted to deal the death blow to somebody, you didn't kill them, you killed their son because it cut off their house forever. Hmm. But we're, we're talking about darkness. Then the Lord said to Moshe, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. How dark is that? So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else for three days. We're not talking about an eclipse. Three days. Has there been an eclipse in your lifetime? I was a little kid. They gave me something to look through in elementary school. We went out. What was that? 20, 30 minutes? Three days. <coughs> Why do you think it was dark for three days? Do you think three days is a mistake? No one could see anyone else leave his place for three days. Or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in places where they lived. Hug your finger here because I'm going to get off topic for one verse that you just you have to know. So it's going to be in a minor prophet. His name is Micah. Pretty pretty cool dude, Micah. We're going to be in the seventh chapter of Micah. You're going to have to tell me when you're there. That dude's fast. In Micah, the seventh chapter, the eighth verse. This would be worth writing in your Bible. It might be worth memorizing. You might need to know sometimes during three days of darkness that that's not the end of the story for you. It says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. We're in the midst of a revolution. We can go ahead and acknowledge that it's going to take a mighty hand. 
We can go ahead and acknowledge that Pharaoh has more chariots and horses than we do. We can go ahead and acknowledge that sometimes all we see around us is darkness. What you cannot give up on, what you cannot quit on, is that the Lord can be your light. I may have fallen down, but I refuse to stay there. God is not calling the kind of meekness that is weakness, that lays on the ground and lets the devil kick you in the face. God is calling the kind of meekness that is all the power in the universe at the disposal and control of God Almighty because He's the leader of the revolution. How long have we sat in self-pity because there was a dark area in our life? How long have we let the darkness of despair squelch our light? Saints, not only do we not need the enemy to gloat over us, We need to not be our own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. So you messed up. Join the rest of the human race. (laughs) As my wife told somebody I love recently, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get to work. There's a revolution to be had. What happens if the heroes don't fight? People stay oppressed. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses. Go worship the Lord. Even your women and your children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind. When do we take our stand in this revolution and say, No, no, not a hoof will left behind. You will not oppress me, devil, not in any area of my life because I will not submit to it. My revolutionary God has said that I'm free. The devil's tactics have always been the same. He says, has has God really said? He calls in to question your knowledge of God's Word. He may even call God's Word a lie, just like Pharaoh did. But as you walk in the truth, you will find yourself walking in light, even on a dark day. We just have to decide what we want. Do you want the leeks and onions in Egypt? Or do you want the fresh bread every day? One is secure. One is, one is I mean, you're going to have as many leeks and onions as you can eat as a slave. The other, much better, but it is so insecure. You mean each day I have to trust that God's going to give me what I need that day? But would you trade your freedom for security? Boy, isn't that a pertinent question today? Would you allow somebody to imprison you, put shackles on you so that you will be more free? And if so, is that freedom? See, I would rather be free from the shackles of Pharaoh. Feel the insecurity that pushes me towards trusting my God, but have an abundant, true life. Wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, me too, brother. Me too. Darkness can be filled. Turn with me to Exodus 11. We're going to be in the fourth verse. See if we can pick up the pace. So Moshe said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go through Egypt. Who's going to go through Egypt? The Lord. The Lord fights our battles. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill. You mean two will be at the hand mill? One will be taken and the other will be left? I thought I remembered that scripture somewhere. 
There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There is a people group that the Lord will cut off, and it's not the Egyptians. It's those who have placed all of their trust, all of their faith, in the fundamental power structure that is this world system now. There is a people group that God will cause to rise even if they fall. Even if they spend three days in a grave, He will cause them to rise. That have put all of their trust, all of their faith, in the fact that this world system is being toppled by a God who wants to rescue the oppressed. And they're willing to trade their security for real freedom. This can be difficult for us to understand. When is the last time you were truly oppressed in any way? I mean, I had a teacher that was mean to me in the seventh grade and it felt like oppression. But is that oppression when we look at a world scale? My parents one time made me eat some food I didn't like. I felt oppressed. I had a teacher take a twisted sister tape that said, I want a rock from me. That was real oppression to a teenager, right? What is it? It's difficult for us to hear the cry of the oppressed, for us to relate to it. It was no different, really, in first century Israel. In first century Israel, Jesus tried to explain to people, you're slaves. They said, no, we've never been slaves of anyone. He said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And I can set you free and you'll be free indeed. Don't we really have the same problem? We don't recognize Pharaoh's working. We don't recognize the oppression or the need for revolution. We're all pretty happy and content right where we are. Because when you go home, you get a nice warm electric blanket. When you go home, there's food in your refrigerator. We have all the security in the world. And what does that do to us? It robs us of the need to trust God. This is why the poor are rich in faith. So what am I telling you? Am I saying get rid of everything? No, not at all. I'm saying we need to rekindle and recognize the need for a revolution in our lives. If you do want to get rid of everything, you can bring it here. We'll sell it and do something with it. Only if God called you to do this. Look at the 12th chapter. Every revolution has a symbol. Every, if we say red flag, doesn't matter whether we're talking about the red flag of China, doesn't matter whether we're talking about the red flag of any of these nations, what are they? What does red flag mean? Communism. communism right? Because red flag has become an icon of communism. Well, God has an icon for His people. A rallying cry for revolution. A sign that He is subverting an existing monarchy so that He can establish His own. In the 12th chapter of Exodus, we find it. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. Now, it's funny. I had hoped and didn't have time to do it to put for you a liberty bell on a screen and show you that. And then to show you a picture of the storming of the Bastille. And then to show you a picture of the Bloody Sunday. Maybe even Che Guevara or some other revolutionary. And say, hey, what are all of these things? And hopefully some of you swift, like Darren, would say, those are symbols of revolution. And then to show you a little lamb in a field going, eh, eh, eh. What is that? What does it have in common? You would never think that a lamb would be a spark 
for a revolution. And yet this is the symbol that God chose. An unassuming, non-powerful, innocent, gentle animal. But there's something in us that understands self-sacrifice is important. There's something in us that admires things that are done that are not in self-interest. In fact, they reordered their calendar based on the day this lamb died. Anybody written a check lately? If you haven't, there is a box in the back of the room. <laughs> but when you put a date on your check, you have reordered your years based on the day somebody else died. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. You mean we're supposed to share this revolutionary symbol? This icon of a fundamental power shift with our neighbors? You're kidding me. I was told that once you're chosen, you're just chosen. It's kind of a frozen deal. Why would we go tell anybody? I mean, Calvin told me not to. Not the little cartoon character Calvin, although it's re equally ridiculous. Because the revolution is supposed to spread. It's not supposed to stay just in your household. Having taken into account the number of people there, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Isn't twilight a strange word? Is twilight dark or light? Well, it's kind of neither. It's that strange time period where you're on the edge of a revolution. See, this lamb would always be a symbol that things are about to change. You may not be able to tell in your situation right now, is it dark or is it light? But you know that if you cling to what God has said, even in your darkest hour, light will shine for the godly. We know this. He chose that moment for this lamb to be slaughtered. By the way, the crucifixion, was it dark or was it light? That's right, it was both. It got dark in the middle of the day. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the doorposts of the houses where they are to eat the lambs. The same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. You mean on the most public area of my house? The billboard, so to speak, where ancient debtors would put your debts, where you would make statements to the owners of your household like, I want to live here forever and they would pierce your ear on it. The most public place I'm supposed to put the blood of this revolutionary symbol. Why would you do that? So everybody could clearly see who is a part of the revolution. Who is it that stands on the side of this power that is small and unassuming and based on self-sacrifice but is surely going to overthrow the powers of this world? Who is it? God wanted the doorpost to be clearly marked. In the same way, I like the fact that the British soldiers wore bright red for us in warfare. Nice targets. God wanted you to be easily distinguished from the world. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. 
body can't be left on a cross <laughs> overnight. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hands. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. How do you partake in this revolution? Ready to move. Ready to change. Ready to embrace a movement. Something's wrong with sitting in a pew, crossing your arms and saying, I'm a revolutionary. Really, what's different this year than last year? What's different now than ten years ago when you got born again? What in your life is being revolutionized? You ever seen those advertisements? Right? It's a white bar of soap. But now it's new and improved. We've revolutionized this white bar of soap. Well, what's, what's new about it? The marketing campaign. Is there anything new about the soap? No, the same soap. This is what vision casting in churches is. We found a new and revolutionary way to present the gospel. But we're still going to share with you the only same 11 points we've all already agreed on. We're not going to go into anything new to study. We're going to tell you what you already know about God, but it's going to be in a new and revolutionary way. Really. God has called His people to be clearly identified, to be distinguished from the world so that everybody will know a mighty hand is bringing them from where they're at now to somewhere. That's pretty hard to do if you're sitting on your salvation. Anybody can move while you're sitting on your salvation? Probably not. On that same night, what night? The night the revolution really begins. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God Himself wants you to understand the storming of the Bastille was not about a prison. Bloody Sunday was not just about that Sunday. The Liberty Bell has nothing to do with a giant bell. It's about something bigger. It's about something more important. It's talking about a revolution in the way the universe works. As we begin to think about this, I want you to understand that they commemorated this every year. The doorposts in Israel were stained with blood perpetually. But like all symbols, you can get used to them. Have you ever really thought about what the red and the white and the blue and the gold on the American flag are? It's been around us all of our life. We don't think about it very much. Have you ever spent a great deal of time contemplating symbols that you see every day? It's so easy to fall asleep at the wheel. Turn with me to Matthew 4. Can you all hang in there with me for a few minutes or would you rather just go home? Anybody give me five minutes? It's one thing when somebody has got visible oppression upon you, when they're beating your children, when they're carrying your daughters off for God knows what, when they're forcing you to work without break. But what do you do with a kind of oppression that is not based on your geography, that is not based on your nationality, that is based on something more deeply rooted in a human being? Our inability to walk in the freedom God's called us to. Our innate desire to do that which we know brings death. What do we do with that kind of oppression? 
Is there nobody in here that's ever had a habit they wish they didn't have? Somebody I love very much in my life. No, it's do me. I bite my fingernail. I do. I don't know why. I've always done that. There are times I do it and I don't even know that I'm doing it. If you get in my car on the right day between cleanings, you may even see little pieces of fingernail. The people that I love have said, Eric, I wish you didn't do that. Indeed, Eric wishes Eric didn't do that. But I find out that the good that I want to do is not always that which I did. Can you agree we're talking about more than fingernails? Yes. What do you do with that kind of oppression? How do you declare your freedom from that? How do you plant a flag and sing a song? How do you take your stand when the battle is really raging on the inside of you? Let's look at Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. Anybody in here ever been that hungry? I mean, there was a time I wanted a James Coney Island hot dog. But I don't think I was this hungry. 40 days? The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, if you are the Son of God, that kind of implies that he thinks he might not be, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't it just like the devil to call you something less than you really are? Mm -hmm. And then tempt you to do something that you really shouldn't do that would be beneath you? Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to uh, the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Isn't it nice that the devil's quoting Scripture now? And he doesn't misquote it. He quotes it correctly. He will command his angels concerning you, and they shall lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is also written. Saints, we need to beware of any theology, of any practice based on Scripture that is based on a single Scripture alone. A man told me one time in a place I worked, Well, that guy's reading out of the same Bible you are. Oh, really? Is that all it takes? We just need to own the book? Scripture needs to be interpreted in light of Scripture. Have you ever done this? You ever played Scripture Roulette? You open it? Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, that's edifying. Is that a word for me today? Close, open. What you do, do quickly. Oh, now I'm really excited. Close, open, consider the ant and how he moves. You sluggard. Well, now I understand clearly. Sometimes there's a battle that's going on in our mind. God gives us truth that truth will set us free from a slavery that makes us do what we don't want to do. What we need to do is bathe ourselves in this Word, the doctrine, the declaration of independence that teaches us what are our inalienable rights. The right way to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the way to the abundant life. But if you don't know it when He quotes it, if you can only surmise that, well, it came from the Bible, it must be true. How can you ever discern what is God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life? Mm-hmm. So this is why we're supposed to go to church, but must go just to be entertained mm-hmm. or to have a social setting or a membership. A man told me on a car lot one time where I was working. 
that he was a fine, upstanding member, long-time member, he said, of a particular church. And if he had not, he would have starved during the winter because there would be nobody to sell cars to. I thought, well, there's a great reason to be in a church. Does that make you a wolf or a sheep? Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, you know the rest of the story. The rest of the shots that are being fired is Satan offers him a kingdom. Right? Satan says, If you will worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Luke adds that Satan says, Because they belong to me and I can give them to whoever I want. So what we have is we have a Pharaoh-like figure who is in control of kingdoms who's saying, I can see that there's something revolutionary about you. I'll let you do what you want as long as you stay submitted to me. Is that really any different than Moses dealing with Pharaoh and Pharaoh saying, go far, but only so far? No. It's really not. Is it really any different in our lives where it says, fine, you're saved and you love Jesus and all that, but don't get so serious about it that it causes you a problem at work. Fine, you're saved and you love Jesus and all that, but don't don't let it keep you from marrying this person. Fine, you're saved, you love Jesus, but don't let it cause dissension in your home. Y'all never heard those same lies? Mm -hmm. Nearly everybody I got born again with got thrown out of their houses. Almost all of us have saved parents now, though. The most amazing thing happens. Jesus leaves this encounter, Right? You'll see in Matthew 4, those of you that have red print in your Bible, after Jesus says, Away from me, Satan, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. There's no more red print. Until we quote a scripture about light shining in darkness in Galilee of the Gentiles. And when you go back and you read this in its original context, very revolutionary scripture. It talks about yokes being broken, people being set free, and freedom coming to the oppressed. And then we have the first red words. The first message Jesus ever preached after He's been tested. And what is it? Repent. Now in Hebrew, what is the word repent? Teshuba. It means to turn around. If you were going to say it in Latin, how would you say it? That's right. Revolutio. To turn around. What else did He say? He said revolution for the kingdom of heaven is near. This system of the world is being subverted by another one. It is destined to fail. Jesus is preaching a message that says, come to a revolution because this order of things is passing away. Pretty soon all things are going to be new. You can join this movement right now by acting like He is your King. Not just in an area, in every area. Revolution is declared. Now, as we begin to think about this, turn to John 2. Every revolution has to have a symbol. A symbol that is moving, that's ingrained in the people, that has something that motivates them to do what God's called them to do. John 2, starting in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These people had been putting lamb's blood on their doorposts to symbolize their freedom from Egyptian oppression and their freedom from the power of death for 1,600 years. Now we have a revolutionary leader preaching a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of revolution, 
and he's also being called a lamb, a symbol based on self-sacrifice, a symbol based on something innocent that is not operating under a self-will or self-interest, but on your behalf. Christianity has chosen for itself the symbol of the cross. This is an enormous mistake. In fact, Christians didn't choose it. Pagan Romans chose it. A cross is an execution stake. It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. And I have crosses in my home. I, my wife wears them for jewelry. I'm not picking on you for that. The symbol of the revolution is that the Lamb shed His blood for you. Not the device on which He shed it. The symbol of the revolution is self-sacrifice. You know what is wonderful about that? It's not the end of the story. The empty tomb is the end of the story. The three days of darkness don't define the moment. The empty tomb and the brightness of His rising define the moment. What defines your life? The moment that you fell or that God raised you up again? In John 8, there's a long discourse on what it is to be a slave. In John 12, Jesus stands and says, For judgment I've come into this world. The prince of this world now stands condemned. The blood was on the doorpost at that moment because God had said it would be so and Jesus had committed His will to it and it would be so. It was just now a matter of walking it out in obedience. By the way, Jesus had just shown victory over Lazarus' death at that moment when He says it. The cry of the revolution has to do with self-sacrifice, of God's will above your will, over freedom from the oppression of sin. We're going to close with Romans 6. By the way, in Romans or in John 8, when Jesus begins speaking with leaders in Israel about what constitutes slavery and what doesn't, he says, "The truth will set you free, and those whom the Son sets free are free indeed." This is to be contrasted directly with what Pharaoh told his people: "Now oppress them more, and don't listen to their lies." These are two opposing forces in the universe: God's word that is true and the devil's word that tells you God is a liar. Mm. Our actions determine who we believe. If you believe God's word about finances, about your loved ones, about anything, how will you show it? By what you do. Mm -hmm. Every tree is going to bear one kind of fruit or another. Today would be a good chance for you to examine the fruit of your life and determine which side of the revolution you've been fighting on. In Revelation 6, I'm sorry, in Romans 6, starting with uh, verse 4, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Go down to 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Sounds a little bit like we need to have a godly revolt. So that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer Him the parts of your body for instruments of righteousness. Our God has set us free. We're participating in a revolution, a revolution that we need to share with our neighbors, a revolution that we need to see through until every last person has experienced it. (coughs) Saints, I'm going to ask you to do something as we leave today. Put out of your thought that the revolution's won by the church running and hiding with its tail between its legs or hiding in your houses or just being quiet, good, moral people. The revolution is won when everyone sees a distinction between you and the opposing forces. The revolution is won when you actually live with blood upon your doorpost. Then people can see how to go from death to life. I with all of my heart want to participate in that revolution. I've staked my life on it since 1993 and a lot of you in here are the fruit of it. For something to be a revolution, it needs to be traveling in a path. It has to be moving. It's not revolving. It's not moving. Where's your life going? Are you any further than when you first started? Or did you camp out right after the baptism? Did you camp out before it? People die and stay oppressed if we don't do what we're supposed to do. You want to see freedom for the oppressed? Then we have to walk in it ourselves. Y'all stand to your feet.